This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast, and Happy New Year to everyone. A special welcome to those of you, as always, who are joining us for the first time. Uh, and we're going to dive right in today. We've we've taken a couple weeks off. We had some great interviews that we wanted to share. I'm looking forward to bringing back some of our old guests because we love continuing conversations. We're looking to bring some new people uh, to the show, not new people to the to the discipline, but some folks that we haven't had on before. I'm I'm excited about what this year has in store from a podcasting perspective and and looking forward to as always bringing some people on and sharing topics and content that will help vault people and the discipline forward. Just really excited. So again, happy new year to everyone. Again, we mentioned that we just did a couple of of podcasts recently with some guests. I uh, was really excited to have those folks on Steve Portugal and Tushar Deshmukh. Uh, really happy about that. Folks had some fantastic things to share, some great perspectives. And so we hope people really enjoyed that and got a lot out of it. We're returning to the Sinister series today, as we call it in short, where we've been spending time talking about sinister traits at work in the world of UX. So far, we have covered, what is it, 40 of them. <laughs> we have covered 40 different traits and a few side items. So really, we've covered probably about 45 or 50 so far, if you really took in uh, a very detailed and and um, granular count of the things that we've presented. But based on the list here, there have been 40. We're going to share a few more today with, of course, uh, some some uh, preliminary items that I want to that I want to talk about. Uh, and then we will uh, leave off some of the remainder of them for for the upcoming episodes. It, it's it's interesting with regard to these these sinister traits because you think you, you want to go into a discipline, you want to embark on a career in a particular area, and the thought is that you think you can just dive in and you can just do this thing no matter what the pathway might be, and then all is set. You just continue on your way. That's the way that pursuing a career is sold to us as children. What, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or once you get to college, what do you want to do? And you pick a major, what have you. And Or maybe you just go a particular way from a skilled trade perspective. Whatever it is, the path that is sold is always presented as clear and without hazard. That is not true, probably in any discipline, for that matter. The thing that's interesting and and something that makes these things more critical to know is that UX, unlike many other disciplines, is a relatively new thing as we know it today. There were forerunners to what we now call UX, and a lot of them, they didn't experience a lot of the things that we're talking about. And an and interesting thing is that you had very high barriers of entry in a lot of other disciplines. You couldn't become an engineer, a usability engineer, unless you met certain qualifications before. That's one of the forerunner disciplines, well before UX. You couldn't be a human-computer interaction person uh, be, uh, because of the—you couldn't just dive into it because you wanted to. Because there were higher high barriers of entry. When it comes to UX, in addition to the fact that we didn't enter the mainstream until the late 90s, early 2000s, the barrier of entry was low. You could get into a UX career without having a degree. A lot of us who actually started doing, again, what we now call UX, because these trolls always come up, it wasn't UX. Those people are trolls. Just ignore them if you want to make progress because they just, they just like making noise. They're not trying to really do much of anything, just so you know. But uh, many of us who got started early fell into it. I didn't decide 
to get into UX. I happened upon it. If you talk to a lot of people, listen to the people who've been on the on the on the podcast on my show. Listen to people who've been on other shows. When you listen to these people who've been doing UX for 20 plus years in particular, everybody has the same testimony. We all fell into it. You couldn't say, you know what? I think I'm going to do this information architecture. You know what? I think I'd like to be an interaction designer. You don't find anybody who said that. You find people who had scenarios that came up. They opted into doing a particular type of work. They fell in love with it. And 25, 30 years later, we're all talking about it. And and if you if you don't listen properly, you think that this is something that we that we opted into from a standpoint of it was a deliberate engagement to go in this direction. That that's not the case. We were able to do that because the barrier of entry was low. Because of the low barrier of entry, there come some problems with that. When you have a field, a discipline, a career path that somebody can take that has a low barrier of entry, now you've got people who don't have degrees. You got people who not only fall into it, you have people now that falsify their way because they heard about what the salaries are. They want the salaries. Some of the people through through cronyism, people are are offered positions because they have a friend that thinks they could do it or the friend's trying to do them a favor. So you get all of these people with this low barrier of entry who come in, don't really know what the discipline is, and don't care what the discipline is. All they care is that they get paid or that they have a certain level of prestige. And so long story short, because of the low barrier of entry, a lack of ethics, a lack of concern or care or caretaking, for the discipline, the waters have become extremely tainted. So for those who don't understand why I would spend time talking about this particular subject, it's because if you're going to operate in UX and you want to do it successfully and you want to be able to navigate through all the muck and the mire and the potholes and the traps that are being established and being operated in, you have to know them first. You have to know them. You have to be aware of them. You have to be able to recognize them when you see them so that you can take the appropriate action to thrive. And if you're in charge of a team, you're running a team, or you're helping people, you're helping grow people in the discipline, you have to make them aware. You're going to have observations that that either piggyback, that build upon, that that offer some additional perspectives uh, to, to what I'm presenting with regard to this topic, but it's still the same thing. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in UX that shouldn't be, but they are because of the aforementioned factors that I just brought up. Uh, uh, Think about the fact that there was no misinformation in UX prior to 2011. You could pretty much listen to anybody. You could pick up any book. You could go to any conferences. Going to conferences back then was great. You would actually come away with some type of a benefit. You you would actually come away being vaulted forward. And instead, uh, you have to really have a strong filter to recognize what is going on. I will never forget going to a, a conference once where I was actually serving as a photographer at the conference. They, I wasn't asked to speak, and that's fine. I, I don't care about that. I actually went because I just was excited to go at the time. And this was when the tides had started to change with regard to conferences. And someone got up and presented a topic. And I'm again, I'm serving as a photographer and I'm getting my standard set of shots for event photography. And I'm listening though, as I, as I'm getting my shots and I, and I hear this person present the, the, the content the general aspects of the content they were presenting, there was no problem, but they were presenting it in a way that put them at center stage. And it also was, it was being rehashed, refactored and rebranded in such a way that people came away actually seeing that person as the star and not really embracing 
the content that the part of the content that was actually true and valuable and critical, people weren't even looking at that. They were presenting these premises. They created a a quote unquote cute graphic to go along with the thing with each one of the things that they presented, and people were getting they were basically becoming enamored with the visuals to the extent that they were ignoring the content. There was there was no real critical thinking going on. And when I realized what this person was doing and how they were rebranding the content, I finished getting my shots and I walked away. This th- this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. That's very very sinister. Very very sinister. And 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 just like what I just mentioned with the low barrier of entry, this the person who was presenting the topic was a visual designer who had practically no experience in UX whatsoever, didn't have the history, didn't know the history, didn't have a passion for the history. They just had a passion of making themselves to be someone in the discipline. So you got all these people seeking celebrity status or some semblance thereof. You've got people who want to be a voice, but they're not trying to really be or trying to produce excellence They're not even thinking about what they're going to produce. I mean, I knew people that got so enamored with that presentation that even years later, they'll still talk about how great the presentation was. But if you look at their work and listen to them talk about their work, they don't implement any of the things from that presentation in their work. So, so what were you really excited about? It, uh, people, and people will say, well, th- that doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. It matters a lot. And, and, and I'm not going to get into specifics about it. I'm trying uh, this particular time. Not that I haven't talked about it before because I actually have. But these types of things is very sinister because it misleads people. It deceives people. It deludes people. It, it casts a shroud over what it is that we're doing instead of presenting the transparency and reflecting the levels of emotional intelligence that even need to be present in our presentations so that when people walk away from a presentation, they can actually do what it, what it, what one needs to do in order to thrive. Because when we don't thrive and when we don't represent the discipline properly, you've got stakeholders, you've got clients, you've got, you've got executives who need to be our partners and our champions to help drive the discipline forward and drive our practices forward, they're not going to be able to do it. So these people in the process of putting themselves out there as being someone to see and someone to hear, they're doing it at the expense of the discipline. That's just plain sinister, folks. It's just plain sinister. So uh, this thought I'd explain a little bit more about why this topic is so important. I, I didn't think I'd be talking about it that long, but you know, it is what what it is. Let's get into some of the okay, we'll call this some of the other preliminary stuff and then to the parts of the the sinister culture list that we want to share with you on today. Uh shout out to TL, that person will know who we are. Um because people, some people they hate the the content. And and does that stop? what I'm doing. No, it doesn't. But I really appreciate what, what TL said to me. They said they follow closely because everything that I've predicted or spoken about over the last year, that's how long they've been listening to the podcast and, or partaking of the social media posts. Uh, they said it's happened in one way or another. And and I love the, this, this statement that they said, they said the industry is eating itself. There are some people out here who get it, folks. There are some people out here who get it. And because they they see it, they're witnessing it. They have stories I do not have, but they have stories that are parallel with what I'm presenting. And some people are objective objective enough to to speak on it and and give a thumbs up and it, from a standpoint of acknowledgement. When they see it, because I don't want to see the discipline destroyed. I don't want to see it compromised. And there's some other people who are like-minded and I'm very appreciative of, of that. So uh, thank you TL for uh, the shout out and wishing you all the best in your journey. 
Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about gaslighting again before we get into the list. Do you realize that, because when I talk about the things I'm talking about, there are people who will refer to me as a gatekeeper. Do you realize that that's an act of gaslighting? We were talking about gaslighting in the last sinister segment. Uh, but that's, that's gate, that, that, that's, gatekeeping is about quality advocacy. When someone tries to present to you that gatekeeping is blocking people out, it's not. And the funny thing, and I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it again, the only people being kept out of UX right now are the people that are being accused of being in the gatekeepers because nobody wants to be accountable for what we're presenting. But if you're not accountable to what we're presenting, then UX is no longer UX. It has the same name. You have taken a Maserati or a Yugo and put a Maserati emblem on it. And, and no matter what emblem you put on it, it is what it is. Uh, um, some of you remember what a Yugo is. Uh, if not, you just go look it up and you'll see what I'm, what I'm getting at. And you'll see the distance between a Maserati and a Yugo. You cannot change the label on a vehicle and it becomes what the label says. So you can call UX or you can call anything UX, but if it's not UX, it's just not UX. And, and that's an, an act of gaslighting as well. People are being gaslit. We're operating in a semi-gaslit discipline today, and folks need to understand that. So we're not blocking anybody. Um, the funny thing is that because people generally don't like gatekeeping, they respond to the term. Again, these people are not critical thinkers. So they respond to the term, assume that the presentation is accurate, they, they know that gatekeeping is something in general in certain aspects of society. And that term is used in the gaming world where gatekeeping is a bad thing. Uh, but in the professional world, every discipline has gatekeeping and that's why it thrives. So uh, we're not going to thrive until we embrace gatekeeping. So please keep that. Please keep that in mind. Uh, because this has resulted in a lot of authoritative sources because some authoritative sources, because they don't want to be the bad guy, they get gaslit at the same time. They get gaslit because they don't want to be the bad guy. They kowtow to the gaslighting presentation and, and they, and to the psychological assaults of unqualified people. You have unqualified people telling you what you are. What are you doing? That, that's that's how a bunch of crazy stuff has already happened. You need to know who you are, have the self-awareness, because if you're being gaslit and you, and, and you fall victim to being gaslit, that means that you have a lack of self-awareness, which means that you lack emotional intelligence. So runs full circle, doesn't it? Uh, so these kinds of responses, because of all the kowtowing, uh, these responses have resulted in tremendous damage misrepresentation of the community at large, the U.S. community at large, I should say, and and that's not really good. Uh, last preliminary, I had somebody reach out to me that said that they said, well, where are you getting all this stuff from? You know, I'm, I'm concerned about the sample size. And, and I, I laugh because I, I can, when I get, certain statements, I can tell in over 95% of instances how much experience a person has. Um, there's a lot of things I can tell. I'm not even going to give you the list. But there are certain things that I can tell just about the way that someone is approaching me, who they are. Uh, but I still go and I look them up anyway uh, just to validate. I want to make sure that I'm being accurate. That's how I know that I'm accurate over 95% of the time. And I'm being nice when I say 95. It's probably more like 98 minimally, but I'd rather, I prefer to say 95. I prefer to understate. So it, it's funny. So, okay, this person just got started. Basically, the person doesn't want to believe that what I'm saying is true, probably because of what they're going to have to do if what I'm saying is true. And a lot of people don't like the thought that uh, of the fact that they've been spinning their wheels when they thought they've been making a ton of progress and they thought that they knew X, Y, and Z and they found out that they knew absolutely pretty much nothing and that they pretty almost have to start over, that they have to start from scratch. So they don't like that. 
So instead of saying facing the facts and going, wow, you know what? I I, I don't know. And, and you know, I uh I've actually got some some problems here. I got they, they don't want to to embrace the truth of their state. They don't want to do it. So instead of embracing the truth of their state, they turn back, and that's when people choose to kill the messenger. And and from a passive aggressive and from a gaslighting perspective, they start asking certain questions. They talk to you as if you don't know what you're doing. When the truth of the matter is, they don't know what they're doing. So they're also imputing their status through the gaslighting, whether it's passive or active gaslighting, it's still gaslighting. And they try to impute their state upon you. I know what I'm talking about. And I told the person, because I ended up interacting with them, I have a rule. And if you've ever, if you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you know what, what one of my main rules is. If you don't know, you don't say. So I haven't said anything that I don't know to be true. I haven't said anything I have not examined. If there's anything I have ever observed, I've been around for a long time. So I've observed it for a long period of time and to make sure that it's not subjective, overly subjective, I should say, because all observations have a strong hint of subjectivism, but they has to transition to a state of objectivism in order to be able to present it to the masses. Otherwise, it lacks integrity. You know, there's a uh, this your truth thing. I don't buy into that. I don't care about your truth. I couldn't care less. Is it what you've experienced? Yeah. Is it what you saw? Yeah. Well, that's what you saw, but ignorance, if there's any ignorance coupled with what you saw, if there's something, in other words, you don't know, then what? even though you saw it and even though you felt a particular way, it doesn't make your observation or your feeling true. It's your experience. I have always sought and I seek to impart to other people truth because truth can stand against anything. A person's feelings can't stand against anything. So it's basically weak. It is, it's not the kind of thing that I'd recommend anybody build the the building or, or, or erect the, the building of their, the structure of their experience on a flawed foundation because it's going to crumble if it's not true. It's, it's only going to stand if it's true. So even when I have observed certain things, I come away with the question, how viable is this? How widespread is this? How common is this? And because I interact with people all over the world, because I talk to people all over the world, because I, I mentor and teach, converse, and listen to people all over the world, I talk to them about my experiences, they share their experiences, and then you get this broad sample set very broad, extremely broad sample set that depending upon the topic could be as long as 40, over 40 years in my case. So when you get somebody coming to me saying, what's your sample set? I'm like, what? You, did you think I just popped out of a test tube or something? It, it's funny. That's a person who's engaged. That's a, a, a reflection of a manifestation of denial. That somebody is in denial. They, they simply don't want to believe that what you're saying is true. So they're going to do everything they can. And it's a mode of self-defense. They're going to do everything they can to try to reinforce this mindset that what you're saying isn't true. And if it's not true, then I don't have to be accountable to it. That's what they're trying to get to. So if you have that mindset, it, it is a sign that there's a lack of emotional intelligence and you need to be very, very, objective if you're going to achieve high levels of success today. So, and yeah, that's all the preliminary stuff. So I'm going to be moving pretty fast so that I can get through this list today. And if necessary, I'll have to cut it short and then pick up because we're already uh, 20 some odd minutes <laughs> into this uh, first episode of the year today. So let's get into number 41. Number 41 on our list of sinister traits at work in UX today 
is ascribing weight and validity to what I call fake UX contests. Now, just some folks hearing that, they're going to get angry, uh, not being aware of the fact that bias rules <laughs> with a lot of people. Anyone that's ever won a contest, a UX contest, anybody who's ever been in a contest and got some level of recognition, they're going to be the first ones that are going to become immediately offended. But is F, the way I've already presented, you have to be objective. Throw out your history, throw out your biases, manage your biases. You're a UX professional. Uh, that means you have to manage your own biases so that you can arrive at what is trustworthy and reliable. In your own personal feelings, uh, that's not part of objectivity. You can't have that. Your emotions, that can't be a part of being objective. If your emotions are involved, you're not objective. What is the truth? And the truth is, when you look at these UX contest, and you have these people, I'm the winner of a contest. I was just awarded one of the top UXers in the world. Those things are such malarkey. I mean, look at other award contests, whether it's, I mean, the things that come to mind are like Grammys, Emmys, Oscars, whatever they are. A real contest has, first and foremost, at its point of consideration, it is all-inclusive. So any award, I don't care what the award is, any award that is not all-inclusive, any award that does not take every potential winner into consideration is flawed. It is, it, 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 it is the best of specify the group, specify the real group. And, and, and when you specify the group, if there is going to be a contest, make sure that everybody who could potentially be a winner of that contest has been considered. UX, and UX, it's weird, this whole UX contest thing, because it's never about, the, it could never be about the individual who's supposedly competing for the uh, being the, the, the top performer in the contest, because UX, the ability to execute on UX, is dependent upon so many different factors that there's no way in the world that you could come back and then say that this person is the best because whether or not a person can operate is dependent upon how much the stakeholders support, how much the organization supports. Uh, it, it, there are so many different things that come into play, you can have people that are excellent at UX and not execute because of the people that they're working with. And you can have people that aren't doing anything, and then it looks like they accomplished the world, and it's because of who they're working with. So it, it's it's this whole thing, it, it, it needs to be thrown out. It means nothing. As a former hiring manager, if somebody comes to me, yeah, what makes you, the? What, why do you think that you're the person for this job? I won an award. Guess who's not going to be considered in my book any longer? Because that's worthless. That's worthless. Where did you get this award from? Who do, who were you up against? It, it, it's it's another way in, in this age of the participation trophy. It's another way to make somebody feel like there's something that they not. It's a way to make somebody feel like they've achieved something that they haven't. It's a way to to infect more people with Dunning-Krugeritis, as I call it. And, and in our day and time, people love having Dunning-Kruger. They love having the Dunning-Kruger effect. They love feeling like they're more than what they really are. So, and then when you try to, something gets done and they feel like it's knocking them off of this, this fake pedestal, uh, then they get angry at the source. It, it, this is the age where, remember the old story about the emperor's new clothes and the naked king who's going down the street and he, think, he thinks he has on the finest apparel made of the finest silk and all that kind of stuff, and the guy was actually butt naked? That's what we have. We have a bunch of butt naked people in UX, <laughs> frankly, who think that they're doing X, Y, and Z, and, and, and it's anything but that. So these fake UX, all these UX contests need to go away. All of them. They are a waste. It is impossible 
to judge that properly because you don't know what everybody did. And even if you did, you still couldn't judge it properly because there are too many moving parts in a UX project to be able to say X, Y, and Z. That's just, just the truth of it, folks. Just the truth of it. So number 42. For number 42, it's also akin to the fake UX contest. We need to do something about these fake UX statuses. There, there's also some things going on. I mean, we had a great, um, a great interaction with regard to the topic of mentoring that was taking place on on LinkedIn. And I mean, mentoring is actually one of these fake statuses because there are people who say they're mentors and they're not. Are there good mentors? Yes. Is mentoring a thing? Can it be viable? It can be to a great extent. And because of the way things have been embraced in UX today, the va- I would say the vast majority, at least a huge chunk, enough, enough people claiming to be UX mentors are anything but. And so it jades the whole thing. Because you would think when you hear UX mentor and you're talking about people who are UX mentors, you would love for everybody that says that they're a UX mentor to really be a UX mentor. But a lot of people who say they're mentors, many of them are nothing more than glorified portfolio reviewers. Many of them don't know how to give career advice. They don't know how to help you navigate certain situations because in their mind, to be a mentor, all you have to do is be able to record or, or uh, a review a portfolio. And, and no, you're a portfolio reviewer. That's it. And are they going to say that? No, they're not because they like the title of mentor and they love being able to flash their badge about how many hours they've mentored people. And it's just really, it's ridiculous. So that's one. I heard something recently where somebody referred to themselves as a, and, and this was just amazing to me. Uh, to hear somebody say something like this. And it's it's one of the most ludicrous things I've heard. But a person was referred to as a UX satirist. And I can't remember if the person that that is supposedly this said it or someone else gave the person this, this moniker. But there is no such thing as a UX satirist. It's amazing when you hear something that becomes oxymoronic. In and of itself, UX mentor is one of the ways you know that somebody has a fake a fake status because their the title of their status is an oxymoron. If you're a UX mentor, but you're not mentoring, then you're not a UX mentor. A, a UX satirist, what in the world does satire have to do with UX? And 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 in the case that I that I know of. The person who claims to be or, or is being ascribed to having the status of UX satirist ascribed to them, how long have they been doing UX? You don't know. No. Go and learn how to do the work. <laughs> it, does, it just simply doesn't work that way. The person is a troll. I know that. Uh, but um, th- this whole, the person is trying to get a name for themselves and trying to piggyback this is what a lot of these people with these fake statuses do. They try to piggyback on an established and respected person's reputation to vault themselves and to try to get somewhere faster than what is ethically possible. Um, and so now that you satirist, no, 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 get out of here with that. So it, it's so funny how some people work so hard to make themselves relevant but they work harder to make themselves relevant than they do to be viable and, and, and actually skilled and knowledgeable in the discipline, uh, number one. So if you want to be relevant in UX today, just excel at what you do. Just excel at it. And you're not if you really excel, you're not interested in accolades and, and faux statuses and things of that nature. And, and I have to say this, shame on anybody who are giving posers, retrofits, and upstarts, because there's people who are doing this, that's what I mean by upstart. You're trying to get somewhere too fast. You're you're an upstart. You're an upstart. Get to the proper path. Stop looking for shortcuts. Do things the right way. Settle down. Go be quiet. And go and develop yourself. Uh, um, uh, Anybody who's giving these people a platform to assault the discipline, because that's what they're doing, Anybody giving these people a platform to assault the discipline 
and profit at the discipline's expense, shame on you. Shame on you for doing such a thing. And, and, and apparently the people doing that, they haven't experienced any hardship yet. So they're in, in these entitles. There's a, there's a, a bunch of uh, entitled folks. Do you know that we have um, like the equivalent of an Illuminati in UX? That's right. We'll, we'll talk about that at the end of this series. There is an Illuminati. There's a group of people that, that sit back, a group of entitled folks who just sit back and call themselves uh, giving some people a thumbs up and a thumbs down. And, 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 and it's all like done in, uh, behind closed doors, too. So, But again, we'll talk about that stuff later because uh, that's how we're going to wrap the, this series up. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there. But at any rate, that's 42. Let's get to number 43. Number 43, This all of this give people a chance mentality, and I talked about this another time. But it needs to be repeated in this list. There are too many people in the discipline today. They they want somebody to give them something. And it what they want is not parallel with what they're qualified for. Now I, I know. That there are times that giving, if, if somebody would just give me a chance, and, and, and I get it, and people think about that stuff, but there's a lot of giving people a chance while at the same time writing off people who've actually earned it. And this has happened so much that earning something now, the concept of merit for many people has been thrown out. It's not even a thing. I know someone who applied for a job, then this happens to a lot of people, what I'm about to mention, so don't come to me with that sample set stuff. The uh, it's, just, it's silly, it's weak, it's childish. Someone who applied for a job at an organization, the person was fully qualified, a lot of them were actually, uh, but I know of one person who has this particular testimony in the particular instance I'm speaking of. And the person applied for the job, ended up getting a note Back or the the response, the rejection notice. And the rejection notice said, we have received so many applications that we have decided to to stop taking applications. So thanks for taking the time. Please keep up with our our announcements and posts for a position that you feel you may be qualified for later. So they're going to end up, because they're lazy and because they don't want to go through the, the applications and weed people out because in these situations, a lot of the people who applied didn't, aren't even qualified. So now, and, and if you talk to the people behind these things, they want to give somebody a chance. When you find out who got the job, you find out that they give somebody a chance. But in the process of quote unquote giving somebody a chance, you stomped on the people who actually deserve the chance. That is. That is inequitable, folks. And and all of you out there, I just want somebody to give me a chance. Be qualified first and then say you want somebody to give you a chance. And or or, even if if you're going to if you're going to take that up as an anthem, because a lot of the people I've seen who have that give me a chance mentality aren't qualified. So it's 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 a job. It's a business. It's not a charity. And so nobody owes you anything. And I've talked about that before. Folks have to get out of this state of mind that, that somebody owes you something. Nobody owes you a single solitary thing. This is something else that, and, and one of the sub-elements associated with this, give people a chance on the side of the people who want the chance. The, the degrees of selfishness, the self-centered nature that's at work and UX today is highly destructive because the people that get the chance, a lot of times they're very self-destructive and it, it's, not, it's like a, a path that follows them and it destroys. Why do you think a lot of people got laid off? A lot of good people did get laid off, but a lot of people who didn't bring any value got laid off too with all the big, we'll never forget this era and all the layoffs that happened in 2023. It will never be forgotten in the UX community, but please don't understand that much of it should have happened. 
a lot of companies were were backpedaling because they hired improperly. And and uh, then a lot of them, a lot of people got laid off, not because, just because they don't understand UX, that happened too, but a lot of people got laid off because they weren't, they were getting a check and they were just dancing around in circles and they were doing UX theater and people realized this is silly, we're not getting the ROI for what we're putting out, we're going to lay these people off, a huge chunk of these people. And, and And in some cases, as much as people like to talk about how bad it was for all these layoffs to have happened. There were many, many, many cases where this was the proper thing to have happened based on the lack of the return on, on investment. And if you get into the core of a lot of those situations, you'll find at the core of it was giving a bunch of people a chance. And you gave them a chance. You said, give you a chance. Chance was given. You didn't produce. Boom. That's, that's, the, way that, that's the way that that works. And so folks need to understand that today another aspect of that that destructive element associated with giving people a chance and, and and this is just a little side note and this one is personal this is for me I don't know how many people have this this testimony but I cannot tell you how many people because I used to be more of a give people a chance person uh, I have done a lot of things to help people who were newer, in the discipline land roles. I have recommended people for positions. I have labored feverishly. I have put my neck on the line for people to get roles. I cannot tell you how many people I have helped when they finally got the opportunity, all they did. This is the part of the give people a chance you don't hear about. And I'm sure there's other people with the same testimony as me. I just don't, I never hear, had anybody tell me this, what I'm, what I'm about to say. But a lot of these people, they turn right back around and they bite the hand that fed them. They bite the hand that helped them out. They, 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 you, you bend over backwards for someone and then they hit you in the back of your spine with a, with a pole while you're bending over backwards for them. It, it's, it's, it, it's amazing the, the underhanded nature of people in general, people are underhand. You say, we need to believe that people are good. You're really, take off the rose-colored glasses, lose the Pollyanna mindset. People can be really, really nasty. And again, I cannot tell you how many times I have done things to help people only to have those same people that I helped turn on me. And, and not because I did anything to provoke it, they just, they just, you helped them out. And then you find out that they were only reason that they were in a position, put themselves in the position for you to help them is because there's some of those people who they want to get ahead by any means necessary. So they use you to get, to advance themselves. And then, and then you're excited for them because they're advancing and they're excited because they're advancing. But then after they advance, they find somebody that in their mind, has more value than you, so you become nothing to them. They connect to another individual that they think is going to vault them even further, and then the person that they connect to, <laughs> that those kind of people are the ones they, they, they want to put their foot on my neck. So in order to advance, they have to join the other person to put their foot on your neck, and that's what I see happening. I've had people steal from me. I've had people subject me to to uh, uh, what I found out was a toxic environment, and that person became a part of the toxicity. I've had people turn around and try to assassinate your character. All these people that if you had not helped them, they wouldn't have been in that position. So all of the this is the part of, the again, the give people a chance mentality that people don't understand, that a lot of these people who want somebody to give them a chance, there's an underhanded, very sinister individual at the core of that. And, and um, God help you when you find out that that's the case. If you're, you got, you got a bunch of confidence in people. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't pan out that way. Number 44. For number 44, we're going to revisit. I talked about blocking earlier, so I'm going to make this one quick because we've already talked about this a little bit, but juniors, there are a lot of juniors. They think they're being blocked to get into the discipline. Are they being blocked? No, nobody is blocking new people. Just stop that. That's not a thing. It's not happening. 
Uh, it's not a reality. Uh, we can, we can let that go. Um, the, what is happening is that a lot of juniors were misinformed or misled about what to expect when they were coming into, into the discipline. So entry level openings, no matter what discipline you're talking about are minimal. You're talking at the most, probably 3% of positions in practically any discipline, um, uh, are entry level. So, I mean, you think about Google and that that terrible program they've got for UX. Yeah, it's god awful. It's a good start, Darren. No, it's not. You you became tainted, and they infected you with Dunning Kruger, and they set false expectations for you. And you could have gotten the same thing by reading books and not paid Coursera the fifty dollars a month or whatever it was. So, if if you call that a good start, there's other people who would be happy to take your fifty dollars a month and give you nothing for it. If that was the case, so that's really that's the reality of it. So you can face it, or you can keep believing the lie and letting it rip you apart from the inside for X number of years, or you can, uh, uh, it was worthless. I got it, and and it vaults you forward. The people who have made that record, that who have recognized that, can tell you how it helped them after they recognize it. I'm not even going to go on about that. But because people uh, Google 400,000 graduates to enter a field with a 3% entry-level rate, that does that make sense? No, it doesn't. So the occupational outlook that people have when they're entering in uh, is what's blocking you. Your own false expectations are blocking you. So you are blocking you from that perspective. Nobody has anything set up to block you. Um, um, the numbers of people competing for these entry-level roles, absolutely astronomical. I mean, you get that? And that's just Google alone. 400,000 graduates competing for 3% openings. Uh, so, yeah, that's really crazy. Somebody is being blocked, though. So, again, this is about the reality of blocking. There are people being blocked. Seniors, the term senior in UX no longer means senior. You've got people now who have little to no experience who are getting the the title of senior. Uh, And it happens to such a broad degree that real seniors are now, it finally, it took a long time. There was a time when you, if you didn't have 10 years, they weren't calling you a senior. It wasn't just because they didn't want to give you a raise. They, they felt you had to get more experience. So we didn't have the term, the title senior when you had 10, 15 years, well, 15 years, yeah. But 10 years of experience, you weren't getting the title senior. That wasn't even going to be on the table. You don't even come up to your boss talking about that. That it, it, It's the complete opposite now. Now you've got people with 10 and 15 years, and, and, and it, it's just weird. They don't want to acknowledge that you're a senior but then if you apply for a senior role, they'll say you're overqualified. So so this whole thing now, that's like an indirect and a passive type of blocking that's taking place. The true seniors are now today blocked from getting lead roles. Seniors are blocked from getting principal roles. Seniors are being blocked from getting manager and director roles. We actually qualify for the people, not, not just me, people like me. I, I talk to a ton of people who are like this, actually qualify for these roles. And, and, and But in many instances, folks who didn't qualify and don't qualify actually get the leadership roles and are making the decisions and they don't want us in those roles because they know we have more experience than them. They're very insecure. Which, by the way, no matter who gets hired, the environment is already toxic because it, it revolves around uh, a lack of reality. So you can't embrace falsehood and and not be toxic. It, it's automatic. So the folks need to know and understand that. But they try to do everything they can from keeping true seniors from being in these roles today. So um, that's a sinister component associated with UX because real seniors basically get cast out. And if, if, if you if you think this is funny now, you've had a ball as ascending in your career, 
wait, and you've got two, three, four, five years, wait, if everything continues as it is, watch and see what happens when you get 12, 13, 14, 15 years of experience. Watch and see how you're treated. If everything, there's going to be, if, if everything continues the same way it is today, people with no experience are going to be getting promoted too fast. And then you end up being outcast and outcast. The only way that we can fix this is to sort of put all the puzzle pieces back in the right place. Now, there has to be an effort to restore these things now that the totem pole gets put back in the right order now. And the the casting off, the blocking, the true blocking needs to end now. And, and the, as long as it continues, then the resulting dysfunction and the consequences of that dysfunction will also continue. And that's, that's a bad thing. So, number 45. It's time to stop. There's a lot of people out here crying about things that result from their own negligence. It's it's I've seen things like this a lot where people will complain about certain things that are happening uh, in and around UX. And but when you really look at it, the the situations that they're talking about, and I, I talk to again, I talk to a lot of people. And people will be talking about how this situation is happening and that situation is happening with our team and uh, our they're not really listening to us and they're not really letting us do our job and they don't really value research and they won't let us do what we need to do in order to bring value. Uh, go back and dissect that thing. It A lot of times the responses that we're getting from people are the result of what we we did. And, and when you think about it, look at it on paper. Forget that it happened to you. Look at it on paper. What was done? How were things presented? What were people given to work with? And then what were the possible outcomes based on those circumstances? And you will find that uh, when I talk about dissecting a thing, this is this is how you do it. Uh, that the response that came about or the turn of events that occurred is actually, yeah, <laughs> it was par for the course. It was it was what should have happened. So we need to be better at having a sense, a very strong sense of realism. We need to understand what will or won't happen potentially based on the circumstances. And if anything, just do what you can to optimize the the outcomes. And, and, and when you do what you can to optimize the outcomes, part of that is planning for the worst case scenario. And, and so when the worst case scenario, if and when it does happen, you're in a better position to respond. You don't take things personally and you don't sit there and have a pity party as a result. Pity parties are never good. They're never good. They're 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 due to a lack of constructivism. So it's better off to understand what can happen and be a part of the solution instead of just floating around like a leaf as if you don't have any control because you do. Number forty six. There's still a lot of people today who want to be a part of the discipline. We sort of talked about this a little bit already. They want to be a part of the discipline, but they don't want to represent it properly. There are people failing to recognize that we have a a level of ambassadorship if you're going to be a part of this discipline. I started talking earlier, and I don't think I actually finished talking about the fact that the discipline is relatively new, especially compared to all the other people in the room. When we are in a a meeting in a room, all the other disciplines in the room are well-established and everybody understands them. They don't understand UX. So, and and because they don't understand UX, the, the faster they understand UX, the better off it is for everybody. So anybody who's in a meeting with stakeholders, anybody who's engaging with leadership, anybody who's working with uh, clients, anybody who's doing anything, every meeting, I always say, every meeting, every project, every every conversation, 
practically is an opportunity to vault the UX maturity forward. And so, uh, but there are some people, they don't want to represent the discipline. They just want that check. They want to be able to say that they're UX whatever, but they don't realize that we each one of us has a responsibility. We have a responsibility to represent the discipline and do it in a way that it benefits everybody. So again, I say this all the time, so I'll keep this one short, uh, but we need to keep things moving forward from that perspective. Number 47. So number 47 and the last one as we come in for a landing here, extend it today. Uh, I just decided to go ahead and just get through the whole list that I had on tap for today. Isn't it funny how only ridiculous things tend to go viral? It's weird. Somebody will say the most ridiculous thing and everybody doesn't see it as ridiculous, which is why part of why it goes viral. But They'll say something ridiculous, and then they'll be like, literally, I've seen non nonsense-oriented posts on social media. I've seen terrible, misleading, misinformation-oriented uh, posts, uh, videos on, on YouTube. I won't even bother to mention Reddit. There's so much garbage on Reddit. It, they could call the platform garbage. People would still come to it. It might be good for other things, but it's... It's not good for UX. It's like a a troll fest out there. But that stuff goes viral. But if you say something, people, I see people, not just me, people say things that are very valuable, have a great degree of, 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 of character, just wonderful things. There was somebody made a post recently about how folks need to uh, talk again, talk about blocking um, the, the the people who claim who who complain about being being blocked. Going back to that point are usually very young. And but it's the the ageist folks that are blocking the older people. But they fail to recognize your day is coming. You're going to be older. And guess what's going to happen <laughs> when you get older? Because things pretty much stay the same because age, age hasn't been around for a long time. So so that means that if you're younger, I got news for you. Uh, you're going to reach an age, a certain age, where people are all automatically going to see you as dead weight. And, and But somebody had a post, back to the post, and they were talking about how that, how vital it is for organizations to make sure that they have older people on their teams because of the perspective. I was, I was speaking to a, to a cohort of mine uh, recently about how you can tell, for example, when younger people, one of the ways you know that younger people design something is because the fonts are all small. They, they don't, they don't recognize that older people need to be able to read this too. <laughs> and and they just completely are just void of it. And the thing is, you don't even have to know that at a personal level. You're supposed to know that from a heuristic perspective, but they don't. And so you'll see these sites with these teeny tiny fonts, stuff that we used to see in footers. They're putting it in there as a standard body type. I've seen portfolios with teeny tiny fonts. So you're not you're not really being aware of your audience. And, and, and that's just another example. And, and it was funny because the person I was talking to great, great UXer and the person was saying that they're, they were younger, but they actually have vision issues. And, and so they need to have the larger text. And so they could, they make sure it's larger because they were empathizing because their condition may force them to see it that way. Everybody needs to see it that way. Even if, even if they're not. They don't have such conditions. So it's really interesting that that uh, people see older people as dead weight instead of recognizing the, the degrees of wisdom and experience and the, the breadth of perspective. Uh, and going back to the mentoring thing again, if you have older people at your job, guess what you have on the job? You have built-in mentorship. It's going to, somebody is going to help guide you. And, and isn't it funny? That's another reason that, we do have people running everywhere trying to find a mentor because they don't have mentors at work. The manager can't mentor them because they're not a mentor. They don't know anything. 
because companies keep hiring folks that don't know anything to run their UX teams. The vast majority of, of companies have done exactly that. So it's 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 really sad. That statement, that post, what I was trying to get to, <laughs> that post, that post, guess what's not going to go viral? The idiotic statement will go viral, but that statement will not go viral. It won't go viral because a lot of people can't relate to it. And a lot of people don't care. A, a lot of younger people feel like if the older people get the jobs, that's another job they won't be able to get. And that's that self-centeredness, that that toxic self-centeredness that I was talking about in today's list. There are so many, as we wrap up here, there are so many sinister things at work in UX today. And if we don't recognize them and take effort to manage them, uh, we're going to be in a world, or continue to be, I should say, in a world of trouble. Make yourself a committee of one that you're not going to contribute to this sinister operation. If more and more people start doing that, we'll have a discipline that we'll be proud to be a part of. We'll have a discipline that you'll find. Matter of fact, this blocking thing, do you realize if the blocking thing that's blocking the real seniors and the real leads and the real principals and the real managers and the real directors, if this blockade stops, do you realize that there were more more things will actually be opened up for the people complaining about the blocking today? Do you realize that? Because the ship would be righted and things would, would flow properly. It's like having a blocked artery. It, 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 UX has a blocked artery today it, it that blockage needs to stop and when that blockage stops then things work out better for everyone so, but that's where we're gonna wrap up on today and we will pick up on number 48 <laughs> in the list next week so thanks for your patience thanks for hanging in there with this long episode talking about several aspects of the sinister culture of today's UX environments. But until next time, this is Darren Hood signing off. Until next week, happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.